as we prepare to read our passage for this week, I, I want to be sure that we do so against the backdrop of, of some of the events of the last several days. This past Monday was Juneteenth. And Juneteenth remembers June 19th of 1865 when Major General Gordon Granger ordered freedom for enslaved people of Texas. Juneteenth is a reminder of the history of slavery that we bear as a nation. And and did you follow the story of the Titan submersible this past week? Many of us followed along together waiting, hopefully, to discover that the vessel would be found in time only to find out late this week that at some point the vessel had imploded, killing all of those inside. And as if to put an exclamation point on the week, the leader of the Wagner Group, a Russian paramilitary organization involved in some of the deadliest fighting in the Ukraine, ordered his troops to invade Russia and march on Moscow, threatening civil war in a country with, according to some sources, the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. Not only do these stories unsettle us, but there is so much that is unclear about them. They are, they are muddy. Trying to sort out the details of, of how we got here and, and who did what, the motivations, is, is just not clear. <clears throat> For example, General Granger's order of freedom came two and a half years after Abraham Lincoln had already signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Two and a half years. And in fact, the Emancipation Proclamation actually did not prohibit slavery federally. It, it announced freedom for slaves in all of the rebellious states, meaning that those loyal border states were exempt, as well as any territory in the Confederacy that were under Union control at the time the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. How unclear is that? I read just this morning in the newspaper that it is likely that, that top-secret underwater listening devices that are operated by our United States Navy likely heard the sound of the implosion of the Titan submersible on Sunday, just hours after its launch. And maybe it did, and, and maybe they didn't, but, but what really happened, and, and what failed, and and what is responsible or who is responsible? And those troops from the Wagner Group have turned around. They're no longer marching on Moscow. But we have yet to hear from Vladimir Putin. And, and no one is exactly, exactly sure where the leader of the Wagner Group is located. Uh, and what's really happening in leadership there? What do the Russian people know? What do we know? What do they want? The details are muddy. 
and, and trying to classify the, the individuals involved or the accompanying events as, as simply good or bad or positive or negative or right or wrong is an exercise in futility. It's, it's muddy because so much of life is muddy. Consider your own stories. It's rarely this or that, good or bad. What is bad now at times turns out to be instructive later. Sometimes what is bad now is still bad later. And sometimes what is good now is, is even better later, and what is also good now is sometimes bad later. See, these categories are simply insufficient for us, and yet we strive to do so in order to make sense of this world. We badly want to categorize things into these neat boxes. Scripture, stories in Scripture are, are often very much the same way, reading stories that were written in ancient languages in places more than 2,000 years ago among different people in different cultures. And these characters are three-dimensional. They're not meant to lay flat on the page. Their details and motives are often left out of the story. They're left to the perception of the reader's. And so those perceptions are then informed by culture, context, social situation. It is muddy. And so our text today is exactly that. Muddy. And I want to invite you to open up the Bibles that you've brought with you from home or your pew Bibles to Genesis Chapter 21. And I'm grateful for passages like today because their muddiness mirror our own human experience and thus are beautiful and have something to say to us today. And, and we pick up right where we left off last week in Genesis chapter 21 at verse 8. Last week we ended at verse 7 at the birth of Abraham and Sarah's son, Isaac. In verse 8, we pick up and we've actually moved three years down the road to Isaac's weaning ceremony. Abraham is having a feast to celebrate this event. Beginning at verse 8, the child grew, that is Isaac. Isaac grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son, Isaac. And so she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son, Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also because he is your offspring. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning and took a bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went away and and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy. And he grew up, he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, what did you hear? What happens here in the story? What what did Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Hagar, and Ishmael do? Throughout the story here in our text, Ishmael is simply referred to as the child or the boy. What parts do they each play? As you look through Scholars' understanding of this story, different commentators disagree on on what is going on here in both Christian and Jewish traditions. Motives and details around the actions of all involved are, are muddled. This story is muddy, and it defies neat exegetical interpretation. We can't simply tie it up in a box. So let's dig into it a little bit. As I mentioned in the story, Ishmael is referred to as a boy, and, and, and yet we know that he would have been at least 16 or 17 years old in the story. In Genesis chapter 17, we, we read that, that Ishmael was circumcised when he was 13 years old and Abraham was 99. Abraham and Sarah have Isaac when he's 100 years old, and this is three years after that. So, so we can know that Ishmael was at least 16 or 17 And so some of the questions that come up is, is what does that even mean then for for him to be put on Hagar's shoulder? That she sets him down helplessly under a bush to die. The visual there is of a helpless child. And so some Jewish traditions maintain that this must have meant that, that Ishmael was sickly and not well. We just don't know. And also, why does Sarah suddenly react the way that she does to Ishmael? Because Ishmael was Sarah's idea. Sarah had been barren, unable 
to have a child. And so she encouraged Abraham to lay with Hagar so that they or that Abraham would have offspring. Suddenly she demands that the servant and the boy be sent away. Her scorn here is evident. She can't even call them by name. But for what? The only clues we have are are one that, that she found Ishmael playing with Isaac. The translation of that Hebrew word there is in keeping with our theme this morning, muddy. If you look at several common translations in your, in your Bibles, you may find it translated as playing, mocking, laughing, or scoffing. What drives Sarah to finally send them away? The literature includes concern over inheritance as well. But scholars have reason to believe that there's something more. In fact, there's, there's linguistic evidence to support any of these following explanations. Listen to this, that, that Ishmael is mocking and laughing at his younger half-brother Isaac, that perhaps he is even physically abusing him. Some believe that perhaps he was shooting an arrow at him. Or that Sarah catches Ishmael committing a licentious sexual act with the young boy. What is it? And what is Abraham's role here? I think if we're not careful in the reading, we tend to let Abraham off too easily here. Abraham was simply doing what God said to send them off into the wilderness like Sarah wanted. But Abraham sends her out into the desert with nothing but water and bread. Abraham is wealthy. Abraham could have provided far more provisions. Abraham could have sent other servants with her to be sure that that she and Ishmael arrived somewhere safely. Instead, he provides bread and water. He wakes up early in the morning, perhaps to send her off before others are there to see. We don't know. And this story, like our own stories, is not this or that, good or bad, black or white, nice or neat. It is full of murkiness. And so, Rather than parse all of that out and try and determine the singular thing that it has to say to us today, I want us to spend some time with Hagar in the wilderness. Sitting in the wilderness of Beersheba. I want us to resist the temptation to rush to God's hearing, to rush to the rescue, to rush to the well, can we perhaps sit in the wilderness with her and the boy? In present day Israel, Beersheba is now a large city. It is sort of the center of commerce of the Negev region. The Negev is a a desert, a vast desert, that makes up about 60% of the territory or the country of Israel. But it only 
has about 13% of her population living there. It's that, that name, Negev, it's, it's based on the Hebrew root word that means to make dry. The Negev is a dry desert, wasteland, with difficult and challenging conditions. Hagar is cast out with a skin of water and her boy in that place that is made dry. Let's sit here in this dry place and consider what is it like to sit with others in their Beersheba seasons of life. When has God called you to walk with others in their dry places? And how do you find that experience? Perhaps there are seasons of dryness brought on through relational challenges, marital struggles, or failures. Through illness, challenging diagnoses, self-sabotage brought on by their own behaviors, addiction, marital infidelity, unethical choices at work. Whatever the case may be, what does it look like to sit with someone in their Beersheba season? And rather than offer those platitudes that often come to mind, what does it look like to simply be with them? I want to challenge you, friends, that the next time you find yourself walking with someone and you find yourself trying to think of the right thing to say that's just going to fix it, resist the temptation. Say nothing or simply say, I'm here. You know, as Christ followers, we, we have hope in redemption. We, we believe that the well is out there. But can we simply sit with people and allow God to reveal the well in God's time? This is an uncomfortable place to sit. It's a dry place to sit. But as Christians, we're uniquely qualified to sit in them because we know that God can and does work out redemption in myriad ways. For many people, God gives them the agency to get themselves out of these dry seasons. But there is often something stopping them. God has given us these amazing Bodies that are incredible tools, incredible minds. That Dave, David Kinneman, who's the CEO of Barna Group, it's a group that works with and resources churches around the, around the world, observed this. He says, most people, for a variety of reasons, fail to possess the motivation to change, to change their situations. He goes on to say, if, if they had, 
If they had it, self-help books would have changed the world by now. It's not that the information in these books is bad. It's that most people are, are unwilling to move off their spot for one reason or another. And friends, I hate to tell you, but so often our great pearls of wisdom are not the things that are going to do it. And so what does it look like to simply be with people in their dry seasons? Not skipping to, to everything is going to be okay. So what does it look like? What does it look like to both sit in it and pray for the well? In our story, the well is there the entire time. It's simply that Hagar's eyes are finally opened to it. And so what does it look like? For us to sit with people in their dry seasons as we wait for God to open their eyes. It's uncomfortable. It's hard work sitting in the midst of others' dryness. But friends, we are uniquely qualified. You know, as I mentioned, reading ancient Hebrew literature, there, there is so much to pay attention to as we seek to unpack it and understand what God may be saying. And the names here in this story are not insignificant. Last week, I shared with you what Isaac's name meant. Do you remember? It's based on the word for laughter. In fact, the same root word for Isaac's name is the word that gets translated as playing here why so many commentators believe there's more going on under the surface there than simply playing, that the author here is trying to communicate something else. Hagar's name in the Hebrew means flight, as in to run away or, or forsaken. And Ishmael's name Ishmael's name means God will hear. And this is the Christian hope we do believe that enables and empowers us to sit in Beersheba seasons with others is that we know Ishmael. We know that God will hear. Perhaps our presence can be a reminder to others of Ishmael without our ever saying it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.